So what do we all believe? We are looking together at some of the main religions, spiritualities of our day, to see how do they compare with Christianity. And in what ways do we agree together on different spiritual matters? Where do we differ? And, and this series a bit, is a bit unusual because each week we're taking a chunk of time really to look at the teaching of, of other faiths in order that we might better understand the faiths of our friends that come from other religions and also that we might better understand even our own faith as we seek to follow Christ. Now, two weeks ago, if you remember, we looked at the teaching of Buddhism together. Last weekend, at Islam. And if you want to pick up those teachings, you can get a CD at the Welcome Center online at iTunes, or you can watch it by video on Vimeo if you would like to. And next week, I hope you can come back. We're going to look at Mormonism uh, together and see how that compares with the teachings of Christ as we look. But this weekend, we are looking at the teachings over, over a billion people on our planet. The teaching of Hinduism. And before we even step into this, I want to give a similar disclaimer that I gave a couple of weeks ago. Uh, in my own graduate studies, did a lot of comparative religious studies. Additionally, in preparing for our study in this series, prepped over the last months for what we'd be looking at together. But I want to be clear about that. In no way am I any kind of expert on Hinduism. Uh, I still feel like I'm just a novice in understanding the Hindu faith. And so in this, depending even on the study of others, Andrew Hazelton particularly, uh, in his work on this matter and topic. And as we walk through this then, I'd encourage you to take notes. So there's sermon notes card in your viewpoint that you can take advantage for it. And, and why take notes? Because of my new favorite Chinese proverb. The weakest ink is better than the best memory. Oh, uh, yeah? So start taking notes, all right? In fact, some of you have asked, is there any way we could get the PowerPoints from these teaching series online? We're going to be posting those on the website. And additionally, actually, you can go to the Welcome Center. We've got notes from each week if those would be of help to you as well. But your own notes would be even beneficial in addition to that. All right. So let's look at Hinduism. And we think of Hinduism and say, so where did Hinduism come from? And so let's do a bit of historical review on this as far as historians understand because it's a bit cloudy. But as near as we can summarize from research, we start our understanding of Hinduism with a nomadic tribal people called the Aryans. The Aryans. Now, many of you may have studied them as you studied ancient history. Now, we hear Aryan, and I would guess your mind immediately goes to the Third Reich and Hitler. Now, Hitler borrowed that term Aryan and even reformed Aryan history uh, as he looked at it. But the Aryans were far long, long before Hitler. And the word Aryan means noble one. Now, in understanding them, historians generally believe that the Aryans began to develop and have their own cultural identity in India, what is present-day India. But some other scholars believe they actually came from northern and eastern Europe around that region. But regardless of where they came from, they were a people that had just this unique language, for one, a unique understanding of reality, and a unique religion. And part of that was this pantheon of gods that the Aryans worshipped. They explained 
really nature, uh, human forces, the experiences I walked through life by these pantheons of gods. And they were travelers, so they took all this with them. They took their culture, their religion, their language across Asia, really, into Europe. In fact, some think they even traveled as far west as Ireland there, and some scholars even suggest that the name Ireland comes from the term Aryan. They also traveled as far east to Iran, present-day Iran. Similarly, we're told that the roots of the word Iran are the Aryans. So you got a little tidbit to share this week with someone. They even moved east from there, but this region, they were hugely influential as they passed through Asia and Europe, walking in this way. And their land, as they spread their culture in the west, Aryanism really became the Greco-Roman culture. And again, their pantheon and range of gods, like Greek mythology, that's how it was expressed there. And in the East, Arianism began to be expressed in Hinduism. So that's why, as you study Hinduism and ancient Greek mythology, you'll see comparable elements, even comparable names of God, because both of those, Greco-Roman and Hinduism, has its roots in the Aryan culture. So that gives us some understanding there and give you an idea of the timing of this. Uh, in Scripture, the people of Israel were put in bondage in Egypt somewhere between about 1600 to 1200 B.C. And it was right about that time that the Aryans conquered what is called the Indus Valley, really present-day Pakistan, a large part of it, as we see there, and began to take roots in that area right about that same time. So while Israel was in Egypt, the Aryans were getting deep roots in that region of present-day Pakistan and India. So that's the roots of Hinduism. So what do Hindus believe? What do they teach? And today I want to look at three key areas of Hindu belief to try to understand more clearly, and then we'll compare it with the teachings of Christ together. See where we agree and where we might differ uh, from our Hindu friends. Now, I think you would easily say, if somebody wanted to understand Christianity they would have to understand scripture, right? Just key to it. The same is true with Hinduism. If we want to understand Hinduism, we need to understand what their scriptural texts are about. Now, there are many of them, but there are three particularly I want to point to, three primary Hindu scriptural texts. And the first is called the Vedas. Just say that, so it sticks there. Vedas. And, and this would be their most ancient, most authoritative text. In, in some ways, to put in our kind of uh, parlance, it'd be a comparable uh, to the Torah, the, the law of Moses given in the Old Testament. That's how the Vedas would be used. Now, there are really four primary Vedic scriptures. They're quite extensive, fairly lengthy, and really the Vedas are stories uh, about gods in different ways. Some of them are hymns and psalms as well. Now, one thing about the Vedas, even different from the other Hindu scriptural texts, Hindus believe that the Vedas were spoken directly by God, kind of like how God gave the law directly to Moses. They believe the other scriptural texts were mediated through human beings, but the Vedas were spoken directly by God and later written down. Now, a number of these stories in the Vedas are mythological. They're stories of gods and goddesses conquering dragons and so on. But the thing with the Vedas, even though it's the most authoritative Hindu text, probably most Hindus would not be very familiar with it. But that's the Vedas, for one. And, and then later on from that, later on there were kind of commentaries uh, that were written on the Vedas to try to 
help understand how the Vedas apply to life. And these were called, these commentaries were called the Upanishads. Just say that. Upanishads. That's a second. So these writings to understand, and these began to be written around 800 BC, and they actually continue to be written well time past the time of Jesus. So the Vedas, the Upanishads, and then thirdly, the third chunk of scripture uh, for Hindus. Uh, now for Hindus, uh, the Hindus actually have what is the longest written poem in humanity. It's over 100,000 verses. Next week, if you come, Brett's going to sing it for us. It'll be a 14-hour service. Hope you can be there. Uh, so an enormous poem. Now, at the center of that epic poem is what's called the Bhagavad Gita. It's one part, small part, of this massive poem. And the Bhagavad Gita is actually a story, one story in this epic poem, in the story of Lord Krishna, one of the gods who they say walks among us. It's Lord Krishna having a conversation with Prince Arjuna. They're on a battlefield, and Prince Arjuna is about to head into battle, and Lord Krishna guides him in what the gods expect of him as a human being. That's the Bhagavad Gita together. Now that, again, is likely the one scripture that the typical Hindu family would not be without. The Bhagavad Gita. So again, that's largely the Hindu scriptures, the Vedas, Upanishads, and the Bhagavad Gita. Okay, so how do they use them? For example, when they gather together for what we would call a worship service, how do they use their scriptures? Now kind of interestingly, they don't preach from their scriptures. In, in fact, in their services, there aren't, isn't really any preaching or sermons. Now, I know immediately what you're thinking. Don't get any ideas. <laughs> but really, their services, are, they're really offerings of certain uh, offering types and liturgies to the gods or God. And again, they don't typically gather for studying scriptures together uh, like we might do in our small groups. But, but rather, every Hindu would still be encouraged to study scripture in that kind of way. That's how they use the scripture together. And again, the primary scripture they would use would be the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, that would be it. And again, as you read through the Hindu scriptures, uh, like the Gita, there's some beautiful teachings in it. I, in fact, you'd read some of it and think, boy, that was, sound almost exactly like some of the teachings in our scripture together. But then there are other parts you think, boy, that is significantly different from the teaching of Christian scriptures together. So that's their sacred scriptures. How then do those scriptures guide them in their understanding of God? What is their concept of God? What, what is God like in Hinduism? How do we know God? What would they say to this? And, and this is one area, their understanding of God, that, that might be a bit of a surprise. Because I would say and think that when Hinduism is spoken of, it's usually described as a polytheistic faith, wouldn't you say? And, and that being individuals that believe in a whole range of gods. In fact, the reality is, in Hinduism, some estimate there's something like 330 million gods and goddesses, even though there's about a dozen gods they particularly focus on together. But the intriguing thing is, according to Hindu teaching, it still is not a polytheistic faith. I mean, if you're talking to a Hindu person, you'll often hear them referring to God in the singular form. And you might wonder, okay, which God are you referring to? But the fact is, for Hindus who are spiritually mature, more knowledgeable in their faith, they view all those other deities, all those other gods, 
that I've just touched on as just manifestations of the one true God. So many Hindus, perhaps not all, but many Hindus might say, I believe in one God just like you do. I'm a monotheist just as you are. However, they believe that God has manifested himself in a whole variety of forms. So understand that. They believe there's, there's one God but different manifestations of that one God uh, so that we can understand him in some way. And, but even so then, from that point then, Hinduism then has kind of two conceptions of, of God. And, and really I can, I can say it's not clear to me how these interact fully. But, but one, the main idea of God is Brahman. Brahman. And understand this. Brahman, according to Hindus, is a God who is transcendent. I mean, he's a God that is uh, difficult to understand. In fact, he can't be understood. He's, you can't connect with Brahman. He's transpersonal or impersonal. I mean, there's nothing personal in Brahman. And he is the life force that is in everything, a part of everything, and out of which everything flows. But at the same time, Hindus explain that all, although Brahman might not want to be known and can't be known directly, we can know him through these various manifestations. For example, like with the other gods that we speak of or idols that we'll be touching on. Secondly, we can understand Brahman through different stories that are told that are clearly mythological in many ways, many of them together. So in that understanding, there's this impersonal God. He is Brahman. But in some way through manifestations, we can know him. And, and those two are one and the same. And I'm not explaining it well, partly because I still don't fully understand it together. And I, I want to try to do it justice to their teaching. And, and I would guess, certainly, a Hindu might have a similar difficulty with our understanding of the Trinity, right? Like, how do you understand that? But if you would go, for example, to the Hindu temple in northeast Calgary, uh, you would find there just kind of a, a number of deities, idols, statues of various types. Uh, and some of them will be, these idols will be animals, others will be human forms. Uh, people come and bow down before them. They make their offerings before those gods or idols. Now, we see that or, or see it expressed, and we think immediately, I would guess, of Exodus chapter 20 and God's guidance to humanity, the people of Israel specifically about this, where it says in verse 4 of Exodus 20, and this is the word of God. The Lord said, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Now, we, we think of that, and in, in, in talking to Hindu teachers about this, Hindu leaders would typically say that these idols, in, in their understanding, are not viewed as or as viewed as a, by the spiritually mature as not the God themselves. But really, these idols are simply to be a reminder of the God that is behind them in some kind of way. But, but certainly, I would guess that many who are not spiritually mature in the Hindu faith would view these idols as a God. They, they believe they're worshiping these idols, the God somehow contained within them. So, so these are kind of their concepts of God then to understand. And again, I want to say, that some of the Hindu concepts of God, you would even say they look very familiar to the God that we worship. Uh, as they speak of a God of love and justice, of peace, other attributes that we would recognize. And in that regard, I think the Hindus are, are reaching out to a God that, that has some similar attributes to the God that we worship as followers of Jesus. 
I mean, a God who created all things, who, who has a way of bringing love, of, of bliss, of peace. But at the same time, there are stories in their own faith that you read them and think, boy, that is nothing like the God we speak of. So again, here we have some similarities and some differences together. And where we begin to see some other significant differences uh, beyond their understanding of God is their understanding of the human condition. I mean, what we are, are we like as human beings? I mean, what does salvation mean? Are we, what are we saved from? I mean, how are we saved? How, how does God interact with us? And, and what is our ultimate destiny beyond our, our brief years here? Now, to understand this, there is a Hindu temple leader that tried to describe, to describe what sin and grace are about in Hindu understanding. And, and I'm going to just quote him directly on this. This is what he said. We say we are not born sinners because we have divinity within ourselves. We are ignorant, but we have the divine spirit in us. We have the spirit that we can do great things. We are ignorant of that, and that's why we do all kinds of bad things. Now, I wanted to quote him because it's a very important point. Uh, for Hindus, that the soul in you is God himself in you. It, it's called Atman or Atman Brahman. And, and so God really has placed a little bit of himself in you. It is your soul. Now, for Christians, again, we have a very different understanding of the soul. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But for a Hindu, your soul is really God. It is part and parcel of God. So then, you aren't born sinful. There's no original sin in that kind of way. We aren't born with sin within us. So, so the problem then for the Hindu in salvation, the problem isn't sin. As even Adnan Blushardi mentioned, it, the, the problem is we need a solution for our ignorance. That's our problem. If only you understood and could wipe away the ignorance, you could then see the glory of God, your soul, shine through you. Uh, you wouldn't do bad things then because you'd understand. You'd have understanding. So then for the Hindu, spiritual knowledge is a solution. And that knowledge is to be coupled with duty. I mean, the deeds that we do, fulfilling our mission on earth. And, and that's the mode of salvation. Salvation comes about through spiritual knowledge. Now, there are three elements linked to that in Hindu teaching. They're often spoken of. that say, if you want to understand Hindu teaching, you need to understand Dharma, Karma, and Reincarnation. Now, what Dharma simply means is duty. And, and again, one of the main duties that every individual has, they believe, is a duty to gain knowledge, to be released from ignorance, so to be set free in that kind of way. So again, Hindus, they strive after spiritual knowledge. Now, some of you might even be involved in yoga in some kind of way. The term yoga, for example, in Hinduism, doesn't just refer to a class that's physical or exercise or about flexibility. But rather, in Hindu, yoga speaks to something that's both physical and spiritual and mental. It's a whole pathway towards knowledge. A way of being set free and releasing the body, the mind, thinking, soul, all every part of ourselves. And so to them, what are we being set free from? Ignorance is what we're being set free from. To release the soul. You're being set free from the human condition so you don't have to be continually reborn in an ongoing string of reincarnation. And that again leads to two elements that we spoke of a couple of weeks ago with Buddhism. When we talked about karma and reincarnation. And mentioned there even a couple of weeks ago, the Buddhism really borrowed these from Hinduism. 
Now, so I won't go to them in depth, but just to refresh us, karma is about our, our deeds or works. And again, the idea of karma is every one of us does, thinks, and says certain things in life. Some of them are good, some of them are bad. And the idea is we need to build up good karma. The more good we do, the more good will come to us in our next life. The more bad we do, likewise, the more bad will come to us. And, and the goal being, if we can do more good in this life, in these brief years till the next life, other than bad, we'll raise ourselves in standing or status in whatever we're created in in the next reincarnated life. So you're born to a higher status with greater bliss and greater opportunity to gain wisdom and knowledge in that life. On the other hand, if you do more bad in this life, you'll digress in your reincarnated life. So really, all that karma carries with you. <clears throat> Excuse me. So if you're having rough times in this life, it could be because you had bad karma from a previous life that carries with you and continues on impacting you this life. So in Hinduism, that's all part of this path towards salvation. Building up good karma, good deeds and thinking, so you can find release from life. And stop this repeating prison of reincarnation to finally gain union with God. And union with God is a goal. And the goal is called nirvana again. And what does nirvana mean, you remember? Extinction. So that the goal is this union of God where really you're just, your soul is just reabsorbed within God. You're in some way kind of lost again. You're just, your one drop of life is put in the ocean of God. Now again, here you might be catching some of the differences between Hindu and Christian teaching. In Hinduism then, again, the soul is placed on earth. God is placed in a body, really, to begin a series of, or series of lessons that are learned to gain freedom, to regain God, and, and to continually hope you can continue moving to a slightly higher level of life form in some way in reincarnation. And typically just hoping to gain humanity at some point. And even according to traditional Hindu teaching, you begin humanity. If you reach out of the animal life to human form in some kind of way, you enter the lowest, most despised, suffering caste in society called the untouchables or also known as Chicago Cub fans. <laughs> you didn't know that, did you? True. And then you hopefully progress to the higher status of life to gain release. All right? So that's kind of a broad, quick overview of Hinduism. So let's move in that last part then to take the teaching of Hinduism and say, so how does it compare with the teaching of Christ and of Scripture that we have? And to do that, let's begin with the concept of God. Now again, as I mentioned before, there are many times in reading Hindu writings that you go, okay, I agree with that about who we think our God is, and I agree with that about who we think God is. But there are other parts that seem like the antithesis of what scripture says about God. So how do our understandings compare, contrast in this kind of way? Now clearly, as we already noted, in the Bible, one of the Ten Commandments is we're not to make idols of God uh, because it too easily, idols too easily twist our understanding or conception of God. So that would be one way that we differ from Hinduism. Secondly is this idea of the manifestations of God. Now as followers of Jesus, we, really, we understand the idea of God being made manifest in a unique way, right? Because that's what God did in Christ. God became flesh. But understand, that is such a different kind of manifestation than what Hindus understand about the gods being manifestation of the one God, Brahman, in some kind of way. But I would say 
the area where I think I found the most striking difference between Hindu and Christian perspectives on God is this. It's their understanding that God is unknowable. It's all about the knowability of God. That, that God, Brahman, is somehow beyond all things, so transcendent, myths and stories can give some hint at him, but there's no way really we could know him in much kind of way. Now we might say, wait a second, we Christians believe God is transcendent, don't we? And we do. God, God is so other in some kind of ways. But, but really when you take Hindu teaching and its idea of transcendence and, and scriptural teaching, you see a difference in this kind of way. I mean, in the Bible, in scripture, we see there even the Hebrew scriptures from the very beginning of creation, God formed humanity for what purpose? To know him, to walk in relationship with him. I mean, God didn't need us. He didn't have to have people around. He wasn't lonely. He was complete as a triune God in, in joy and peace and community. But simply out of extravagant love, God created us that we might be recipients of his divine love poured out to us in relationship. And that, again, is at the very heart of all this story that we have in Scripture. The very heart. I mean, throughout Scripture, the Bible is a story of God's interaction with humankind in giving his love and offering himself to us to the point of sending his own son that we might know him and walk in relationship with him. So understand in this way, this is a wildly different picture of God than that of our Hindu friends. Wildly different. Who, who would say we can't even really begin to understand God. I mean, God in the Bible, he longs to be known. He wants you to walk in relationship with him, to, to experience his presence in your life. I mean, in Hinduism, they would say it is only the very few, only the highest spiritual elite who would begin to say in any kind of way that they have a relationship with God or really have some connection with God or are close with God. But then you look at the teachings of Christ and of our Christian faith. And the invitation is that from the very beginning, when you first turn in faith to Christ, you have a relationship with God. In, in fact, John puts it this way beautifully and succinctly in, in, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. 1 John 3, verse 1. Listen to what John says. Uh, John writes, I mean, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called what? Children of God. And so we are. Now understand, that is, that is just unknown to the Hindu faith. So even before you have learned anything about God, you stand as treasured by him personally. And he added that we can have spiritual experiences of God. That's why we speak of gathering together worship. And times, I'm sure you've experienced as well, where your, your heart is lifted and you, there's a sense of the presence of God with us that, that might come. Other times where you might be reflecting on Scripture or, or walking out in God's creation like Stan spoke of today. Or when the love of God wells up in your hearts and you feel like he's giving you guidance, encouragement by his Holy Spirit. I mean, that's a part of this Christian faith we walk in. And another area of marked difference between Hinduism and Christianity is our understanding of the human condition and how salvation is affected. Again, in Hinduism, remember that your soul is God himself. It is God in you in that way. It is Atman Brahman, uh, seeking to be set free, seeking to be reabsorbed back into God. And so the answer, again, they would say is spiritual knowledge. Uh, called through and gained through life after life after life of reincarnations. 
Now in this, there's a sense of justice and, and salvation in this idea of karma that's at the heart of Hinduism. That if you do enough good, you can move up to the next life and finally gain nirvana with God. And again, in that, boy, we would teach something very different. I mean, although certainly we believe our soul is fashioned, created by God. We believe it's been formed in the Imago Dei, the image of God. But we understand that our soul is not the same as God. Our, our soul is not God. It's distinct from God. It's, it's unique to you. Now, certainly the Holy Spirit, we speak of the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. But that's distinct from your spirit. And we believe that although our soul, it, our soul has beautiful dimensions to it. It should. It's been formed in the Imago Dei. But we also recognize it's been broken, uh, barred by our sinfulness. So therefore, even our soul, our spirit has this inclination, this propensity to do wrong things, to turn from God. And, and that's why the Apostle Paul, in writing to the church in Rome, wrote these familiar, powerful words in Romans 7, 19 and 24. He wrote this. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Wretched man that I am. Anybody ever experienced that? <laughs> I can see you all raising your hands because you should be. <laughs> we know this is true. I mean, we read about it and we hear about it even in the news. About individuals, their horrible choices in bringing pain or grief or abuse to themselves and to others. I mean, even individuals who have grown in spiritual maturity can still struggle, can still fall if they're not walking by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we constantly feel that struggle in our lives, don't we? It's, it's part of our existence in this world. And we know that in ourselves, we cannot save ourselves. I mean, I can't gain enough knowledge to bring salvation. I mean, we're called to good deeds, but, but our own good deeds can't save us. Like Isaiah 64, Isaiah says, understand this, all your righteousness, all your good deeds, they're like filthy rags before God. So there's just this unspannable gap between God's holiness and our brokenness. That our good deeds can't span. And so that's why we'd say the solution, according to Jesus, is the grace of God. That God reached out to us in our utter helplessness to offer us not just forgiveness, but redemption of healing by grace in Christ. To the point of becoming one of us in order to save us. And, and friends, it is here in reflecting and studying Hinduism, it, this is where I found it particularly interesting to look at Christianity kind of through the lens of Hinduism. Because in, in some way we could say that we Christians believe in some principles that are not unlike karma. For example, what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians. In Galatians 6 and verse 7, Paul wrote, Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will also reap from the flesh. And the one who sows to the Spirit will also reap the Spirit of eternal life. I mean, so in some way we have those ideas of what we pour out comes back to us. But here's the thing that Christians believe that our, our Hindu friends might grasp. Christians believe that God came, that he sent himself, Jesus Christ among us, in order to take upon himself all of the bad karma of the human race. All of it. It's a revolutionary idea. That while Jesus was nailed to the cross, the only perfect human being who ever lived, he took on himself all the bad karma that you and I would ever produce in this life. I mean, this is God's plan of salvation. 
Knowing that, knowing that we could never get enough good karma in our life to outweigh the bad karma. You would never be able to bridge that gap. And not only this, the reality is, it's not only that good, but we believe that Jesus was this perfect, holy individual, the only perfect person who ever lived. And so Jesus had perfect karma. And beyond taking on himself the punishment for your and my bad karma, he credits to us then his perfect good karma so that we might be united with God and then stand as one perfect in the presence of God through Christ's perfection and end this kind of idea of an imprisoning cycle of reincarnation. So as followers of Jesus, we don't become holy by just self-will effort alone, but we then have the indwelling presence of God's Holy Spirit to guide and empower us in life through, through grace, wisdom, strength, power. Thanks be to God. And one last distinction, if I can touch on. And that's about our understanding of the life to come. Because according to Scripture, Scripture tells us we don't face an endless cycle of deaths and rebirths and reincarnation. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 9, it's appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. I mean, and that judgment is based on how we respond to Jesus in our life here. And Jesus said, the life to come is not one where we're just absorbed into the nothingness of God. But rather, Jesus said, you cannot even imagine what my Father's prepared for you in the kingdom to come. You cannot even imagine. There'll be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more suffering, and I will be with you. And so the hope we have through faith in Jesus is of being with those we've loved in this life. Our time together is not done through faith in Christ. This is all part of the Christian conception of this kingdom of heaven we'll be part of, which is so different from nirvana. And, and that's why, for me, my, my hope when I die, which I hope is still a time to come, is that Jillian and I will be reunited in God's kingdom. Not perhaps as husband and wife, but as brothers and sisters in Christ, something different than that. And we'll have this joy of being in God's kingdom together. And, and so resting this, we've even identified the spot where we're going to meet each other in God's kingdom. We have, you want to know where it is? I'm not going to tell you where it is. I, because it is such a good spot, you're all going to choose it. It's going to be way too crowded. So pick your own spot. Now, now I understand clearly, God's kingdom might look so different than what we expect. And, and so our spot might, might not work out. Uh, but even if it is different, there will be the joy of being reunited there with those we love. Mm. Can you imagine it? Uh, seeing my parents again with joy. Having our kids come to us again in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, Christ's conquering of death, it gives us hope, not of reincarnation, but of resurrection life to come. So are we all really just teaching the same thing in all these religions? Friends, I cannot think of a better, clearer, simple, a symbol to represent the, the just stunning distinction between the teachings of Christ and other religions than this table. It, it's perfect. It is the table of communion. I mean, our hope, the hope of every person, every nation is only in the body that was broken and the blood that was poured out. It's in the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
It, it's been so interesting. My own studies of these different religions in, in working towards this series. It reminds me of many years ago where I was on my own journey of looking at different religious faiths and saying, does the teaching of Christ stand up to this? And what hit me then is what hits me again and again as I go through this study. And again, my heart is hit with again this morning. That again, it all comes down to Jesus. That's what it comes down to. How will you respond to him? Doug Coe is a, really a minister who's involved in ministry in the city of Washington, D.C. And he tells a story about a, a, a study and prayer group he was involved in while he was in Washington, D.C. And it was a group that met kind of on a regular basis for people involved in government and statecraft in that powerful city. Uh, and people would come and go in that group. And one day, a guy walked through the door, and Doug Coe knew that's Arthur Burns. Now, Arthur Burns was a man who'd been involved in setting high-level financial policy in the States for many years. A powerful man. And, and Coe knew that at that point, Burns really didn't have much spiritual interest. He was just beginning to search, apparently. He was from a Jewish background. And while he sat there in the group, really in silence, watching, the, the leader of the group didn't know who Arthur Burns was. So because Burns really hadn't spoke up during the meeting, the close of the group, the leader turns to Burns and ends the meetings by saying, uh, Arthur... Would you close in prayer for us? Now, Doug Coe knew Burns. And he said, I took a deep breath at that point because I had no clue what would happen next. So they all bowed their heads and waited for Arthur to pray. And after a pregnant pause, he prayed this prayer. God, may all Jews come to know Jesus and may all Muslims come to know Jesus. May all Hindus come to know Jesus. And God, may all Christians come to know Jesus. Amen?